Hello and welcome to the podcast and the news that my old boss, Samir Shah, is to become the new chair of the BBC. For the last three years of presenting feedback on Radio 4, the series was made by his independent company and he was the executive producer. And I have to say, made virtually no impression on me at all. We rarely, if ever, had a conversation and his contribution to the editorial content of the programmes seemed to me to be minimal. Perhaps I missed something. Sabir seemed to spend a lot more time on his other political interests. He's said to be a friend of the Prime Minister, Rishi Sunak, who was said to want him to be chair of the Victoria and Albert Museum. Samir is still supposed to be conducting the BBC inquiry into its coverage of immigration issues with Madeleine Sumption, and he was also one of the authors of the Government's Commission on Race and Ethnic Disparities, otherwise known as the Sewell Report. He's well-liked in government circles, and his half-brother is the controller of Radio 4. He has a lot of problems waiting for him in his new entry. Newsnight's budget has been slashed, and the government seems likely to give the corporation a licence fee rise after a two-year freeze, which is rumoured to be less than the rate of inflation. So, many more cuts to come. And over at Channel 4, Ofcom, the industry regulator, has just put out for consultation the proposals for a new 10-year charter for that broadcaster, Channel 4. In the case of the BBC and Channel 4, as well as Channels 3 and 5, the government is also relaxing some of their public service obligations. Of course, we may have a new government in a year or so, but we have no real detail about Labour's thinking about broadcasting, other than that they too promise to be tough on public spending. Will Labour embrace Dr Shah in the light of his Conservative affiliations? Meanwhile, those in the BBC newsroom are grappling with sustained criticism of their coverage of the Middle East conflict. Is such criticism fair? David Aronovich worked at the BBC in a senior capacity before becoming an outstanding columnist on The Times, as well as the presenter of numerous radio programmes, including Radio 4's Briefing Room, a programme I try never to miss. He now publishes longer articles on Substack and contributes to Tortoise Media. Almost 20 years ago, when I was an independent producer, he made a documentary for me about Arab and Palestinian anti-Semitism called Blaming the Jews. I talked to him on Wednesday morning this week. David Aronovich, we worked together about 20 years ago on a programme called Blaming the Jews, you made for my independent company there, and you went into Gaza and you went into uh, the West Bank and so on, and you explored the terrible anti-Semitic stories that were around then. Did you have any idea that they will sort of explode in the way, or rather fuel, what has just happened in the last few months in Gaza? I wrote a piece after, for The Guardian, as it happens, shortly after we came back from Gaza on that programme. And in one way, it looks kind of slightly prescient, but in another way, you didn't have to be prescient at all. I mean, what it said was that here in Gaza, obviously, you're storing up a, uh, for various reasons and for various responsibilities, a degree of suffering and hatred, which will, at one point or another, in a generation or so's time, could very well be explosive. That's not to say I predicted what will happen. I didn't. It's just that you didn't need, you know, just as you don't when you look at things on the West Bank, to know just how bad things were and what fertile ground it was for... 
the kind of um, hatred and militancy which Hamas pretty much always represented, because by the time we went there uh, into Gaza in 2004, I think it was, we already had had, you know, the Hamas suicide bombings going into Israel in order to try and thwart the progress towards any kind of peace plan uh, and so on. And that's one of the reasons why Israel built, the, you know, the, the, the wall both around the West Bank and to, certain, to a significant extent around Gaza. But when you look at this sort of horror of what occurred, I mean, of the, of course, there are always, there's, you know, wartime propaganda starts immediately. And for example, the stories of Israeli babies being beheaded appear not to be true. But what is undoubtedly true now from the evidence, of course, that has come out are beheadings of soldiers, are rape, are the most appalling uh, video showing um, the rejoicing of uh, some of those Hamas militants. Hey, mum, look what I'm doing. You can't have anticipated that, did you? I didn't. That's the scale of horror I was not prepared for. No, 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 no. I mean, uh, that that things would happen was kind of predictable. I mean, I suppose we, we thought it would be in terms of, you know, significantly more suicide bombings and so on, because that... You know, we were in the period after 9-11 and so on, and that was the kind of the the mode of the moment. You had essentially kind of two models. One was the intifada model of the street uprising and so on, of which we'd had two by this stage. Uh, we'd just finished the second intifada, and you had the other model, which was the model of suicide bombings of civilian targets uh, and so on. And I suppose I was thinking of that. What I didn't anticipate was that you get a bust through the Israeli security court and in which it looks like hundreds and hundreds of young men, some whom will have been affiliated to Hamas, some of whom may not have been coming in on the backs of that, who just behaved in a way that you can only describe as utterly bestial. I had generally thought of uh, Palestinians as being a kind of almost a kind of type of Jew, really, in the sense that what you have amongst Palestinians is a pretty highly educated population. Uh, a lot of Gazans actually live round the world and are educated as doctors and, uh, and academics and so on. And I suppose I always, I never, I never really thought that that form of kind of unconstrained savagery would be a feature of anything that Palestinians, apart from a very small minority, would do. And so in that sense, it's been it's been a terrible shock for everyone. No wonder some people are in the business of denying it because it's too awful. Uh, and some people, particularly Jewish communities, etc., are now completely traumatised by it. And of course, the problem for broadcasters, people covering this, is that in such a traumatized societies people only see that which supports their view of the issue now for somebody like myself who's not a jew um you know it's it's difficult enough to be sure am i being you know fair whatever in what i do for you as as you know i think your father was a jew there must have been intense pressure also to to see what was wrong if you like with the bbc's coverage in particular is alleged anyway of the middle east conflict and to focus on that and any attempt for you to say yes but hold on we have to look at the scale of bombing there is a question of proportionality we have to look at the numbers killed allegedly killed in gaza so we have to look at that um we're into a situation that we used to have in northern ireland didn't we when we, you tried to tax one side with an atrocity and you'd be into what we call whataboutism 
Oh no, what about this? What about this? No, no, exactly. That, that's exactly right. Uh, right from the beginning, uh, from the absolute earliest stages, when the BBC was describing Hamas as militants, there were criticisms from people. I mean, actually more than criticisms, saying that effectively to do this was to side with the terrorists. You don't call them terrorists, then in that case you don't. And, you know, it was with... I tried to point out to people I knew and, and respected a lot, look... The BBC didn't call ISIS terrorists, for heaven's sake. And you didn't complain in 2015 when you heard about ISIS militants and so on, killing Yazidis, the Yazidi genocide. This is just something that the BBC and other news organisations do. Now, of course, it didn't help that the BBC, as ever when defending itself, defends itself late and badly. I mean, it, you know, it seems to be you and I have been around long enough to know that it's always, always somehow caught out <laughs> by these criticisms, despite the fact that they're absolutely inevitable, really. I mean, for instance, the uh, argument I use, you know, look, they didn't in the case of ISIS. I don't remember the BBC even saying it. It's, it's an obvious kind of point. And I had the peculiar experience of talking to somebody who was very, very exercised about the BBC doing this. And I said, but you were at the BBC in a senior position in news at the time when they were reporting ISIS and calling ISIS militants, and you appear not to have noticed. And now you're really angry about it. Can you not kind of see that there's a slight kind of problem of positioning here? So your point in, in that respect, that was the first sign of what you were saying was absolutely true. I was astonished by an article by a senior BBC figure, a person who'd been a senior figure, Danny Cohen, in the Daily Telegraph. Because he was, Danny Cohen is a very senior member of the BBC uh, executive. And he has, it's not that he complained about BBC coverage. But he's used two or three instances of what he believes is, is inadequate reporting, should we put it politely, to categorise the organisation as being anti-Semitic in its approach. Now, that shocked me equally that somebody as well-informed as he ought to have been wouldn't just, just say, that, hold on, you're not doing well here, there are individual points, is to go more broadly and allege the organisation is anti-Semitic. Wow. So there are a couple of things going on here I think that we, uh, that we have to... We have to kind of unpick. The first is that Jewish people, some Jewish people working for news organisations, including the BBC, they felt that felt it hard to communicate the trauma that the Jewish community was going through to their colleagues. I have no, I, I've been told this. Essentially, they they felt dismissed uh, and so on. They felt, and they also felt that their colleagues were heartless, and in being heartless and callous in the way in which they discussed things in the newsroom and so on, represented a kind of bias. I think what they may have forgotten is that that's how newsrooms talk if they're not directly involved. But the problem was for the Jewish community, and this is the point which is. It's really hard to get over to people. The British Jewish community is not huge. It has a lot of relationships with people in Israel. It knew people who'd been kidnapped and some people who'd been murdered in those massacres. They were their friends and relatives. It's, it's not something kind of theoretical. And consequently, when they were looking at that and what had happened on October the 7th, when they didn't see a kind of corresponding degree of response and horror on the part of their colleagues, they felt incredibly isolated. And I think they went and told, said, you know, the conversations spread pretty quickly. And I think that the discussion became one about how the BBC itself and people working for it were pro-Palestinian, essentially, had taken sides. And it was an easy thing. And I, I mean... 
you know, you and I, when we, we made that programme are called Blaming the Jews, and you remember some of the kind of aspects from it and how we tried to differentiate what you might describe as Muslim or Arab anti-Semitism, both actually, from the either Christian anti-Semitism on the one hand, which it was related to, and racial anti-Semitism, the kind of the Nazis which it is not related to, and why this may have come about. And so, so we, you and I have became, were very, very used through the process of researching those programmes, etc., of the kind of ways in which anti-Semitic tropes are raised, the way in which it becomes incredibly difficult to police the border sometimes between the raising of anti-Semitic tropes, Jewish power, Jewish money, etc., and anti-Zionism, Israeli power, Israeli influence, etc., on the other, and how people become incredibly easily confused by it and stray continuously from one side of that border to the other or in danger of it. And they do, of course, on parts of the left, as we've seen, because I remember making that program and, and talking to some people on the left. And I'm saying to them, look at Hamas. In the founding documents, the founding documents of Hamas, they talk for the eradication of the state of Israel. This is not about two-state solution. This is not about living together. This is essentially about eliminating Israel. Now, they found a lot of people on there found that very difficult to take. They'd bought into this sort of idea, as we did, I suspect, in the early coverage of Northern Ireland, into this where we looked at American civil rights, Martin Luther King, then the Catholics and all now, that must be the same thing. And now we look at the situation in Palestine, as they would call it, and it's the same thing. You know, four or five years ago, anti-Semitism on the left was on the front page, not least because of its association with Jeremy Corbyn and so on. But there is a problem still there, isn't there, about the unwillingness to recognise what you and I found, which was genuine, unfortunately, anti-Semitism among Arab countries and indeed within Palestine itself. Yeah, I mean, you have to say that those in the Muslim community, and there are quite a few, who recognise what anti-Semitism is and try to combat it, are, are up against it. I mean, they're always up against it because if you are to take sections of the Quran literally, just like if you were to take sections of the Bible literally, but very few people do, but if you do take sections of the Quran literally, then, you know, the whole business about Jews behind trees who you have to kill and, you know, uh, etc., which do conflicts with other parts of the Quran, which suggest a kind of a more tolerant approach, are problematic and they're raised in this particular time. And then you and I both know also that there is something about the Palestinian issue which exercises Muslim activists in a way that the condition of other Muslims around the world simply doesn't. I mean, we don't have demonstrations about Darfur where there is an ongoing likely genocide as a result of what's been happening in Sudan. I think there was a demonstration by some Rohingya themselves in London, but I don't remember anybody kind of joining it and so on. So this becomes a kind of post-colonial litmus test of your siding with the oppressed in Britain. It's a form of, it's a form, as much as anything else, of self-identification as it is of actually kind of any, any objective notion of who's suffering most at any one time and how you might kind of alleviate that suffering. Uh, and it always has been, actually. I mean, you and I will remember... I was in the student movement, I was a student at the time, when the UN made the declaration out of the General, uh, out of the, uh, General Assembly that Zionism was a form of racism. The 
net result of that was that we suddenly had on campuses uh, local Trotskyist groups suggesting that if Jewish uh, uh, student groups expressed pro-Israeli sentiments, then they were Zionists, uh, which, of course, a lot of them were, and that therefore they were racist, and that therefore under the No Platform for Racist banner, they ought to be banned. And that argument was made, and that we're and we're going back. We're going back. It's weary, familiar, isn't it? It's here this again. Is nearly, this is nearly fifty. This is nearly fifty yeah. years ago. This is nearly fifty years ago. And since twenty years later, we had the Oslo Peace Accords, and the hope that persisted for the best part of half a decade or more, maybe a decade, that we could actually move towards a viable two-state solution. And at that point, things had become much, much easier. It became much easier to make the argument in favour of Israel because it was also an argument in favour of uh, a Palestinian state. Since the effective obliteration of the peace movement in Israel, not least by Hamas, etc., but also by the Israeli and the corresponding Israeli rise of the Israeli far right, it's become nearly impossible. You can't argue, it's almost been almost impossible to argue towards a solution in which Palestinians and Israelis live side by side, which means that effectively an argument for obliteration one way or the other becomes favoured. It becomes favoured on the left and it becomes favoured also on the far right. But what I find extremely frustrating, I, I subscribe to a summary from a Haaretz newspaper. And uh, what's extraordinary to me is that the... Uh, the, the, the sophistication, the quality of debate, the criticism of the Israeli government, not this present one, well, this present Israeli government, uh, in Haaretz, if it was published in a British newspaper, would almost uh, 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 find itself charged being anti-Israel, which, of course, it isn't. I mean, in Haaretz, it's possible to po- point out that they've got racists in Netanyahu's cabinet, Ben Gavir for a start. It's possible to, to go on and on, uh, as they do very early. BBC is sort of caught, caught up at what's going on in the West Bank and the way the settlers, uh, Israeli settlers have behaved. So, paradoxically, in that society of Israel, you have newspapers covering far more critical, in many ways, of the uh, in a sophisticated and intelligent way of the Israeli government than you have out out here. And yet here we're still, we have an almost primitive debate about this issue, don't we? You must be on one side, you must be on the other. We don't want to hear anybody, you know, trying to understand both sides. No, I, abs- I absolutely agree. So on one side, you get the spectacle of Douglas Murray, who I think is towing the line between the current far right and actually a form of modern fascism, uh, appearing in the Jewish Chronicle as an ally of British Jewry in the week after he suggested that possibly what should happen is that Gaza should itself be obliterated and the Palestinians forcibly removed from Gaza. I cannot imagine that that would have been a position which would have been published in the JC a decade ago. And it is a direct result of of the trauma, or it's partially a direct result of the trauma of October the 7th. And on the other side, I mean, uh, I was just looking at something uh, that was put out by uh, an Aus- a, a veteran Australian journalist uh, called Mary Costakidis, and something I want, I'm going to write about today, 
in which she repeats something that was on a site called Mondo Vice, which is well known, actually, for being one of these things that tips the line over from anti-Zionism to anti-Semitism, in which she says, can we really say that Jews in the concentration camps, given the opportunity, wouldn't have spilled out, you know, into the surrounding countryside and committed the same kind of crimes in order to try and... And it's such, such a, it's so ahistorical. It's so wrong in every in kind of, kind of uh, historical and morally, etc. And yet here you have this senior former journalist from Australia repeating it to in a widespread way on social media. It's utterly disgusting. But I mean, it's in the midst of all this, the BBC, the BBC, which is trying to report, as you know, they used to say the old saying about the BBC, when the country is divided, the BBC is on the rack. Well, you could say on this issue, the BBC is on the rack. But actually broadening our discussion, it's on the rack more generally, isn't it? I mean, just, just first of all, dealing, well, finally, really dealing with the question of its coverage in the Middle East. Are you, I mean, if your verdict was in now, if you were back in a job, you were, I think, a managing editor of Current Affairs at one stage in the BBC. <laughs> um, if you were back in there, uh, what would you be saying to your colleagues? Uh, I think there have been some really significant problems uh, uh, over this. I mean, for one of the big problems that I think that we've had is that we've not the, the BBC? Well, we've had the BBC has had another is that they've not been able to be fully truthful about the circumstances under which they report from Gaza. I've really felt this uh, incredibly strongly. In the first instance, you cannot look if you're a BBC reporter and a hospital uh, is in danger of being bombed or any kind of reporter. If you say, I suspect there may well be tunnels under here because there's a history of it, and actually the articles about this go back well over a decade, establishing that that there certainly are, it acts like effectively, and you're saying this in front of other people there, including your colleagues from the the press, etc., it's almost like an invitation, uh, it may seem, for the Israelis to bomb the hospital you're in or that you're close to. So you don't say it. Yeah, but it's um, not a job of an editor. If we were there, we would say, look, exactly. there are constraints to what you do. So elsewhere, we'll do something about exactly, that issue. Exactly so. Exactly so. Uh, so it becomes so it, it, it becomes very slow to say the Hamas-controlled health ministry makes this claim. That we, so the first reports were all about the Gaza health ministry, the ministry, as if it were some kind of completely neutral body. When you're run by Hamas... Nothing is neutral. <laughs> that's, that's the truth of it. And that actually includes aid agencies who have to work with Hamas at this point and constrained by Hamas. But isn't it also, the, also a fact, though, that um, in nearly all, for, for reasons of easier operate, most coverage of the Middle East, the BBC elsewhere, has been done from Israel. And Israel is a far more sophisticated country in terms of providing video and stuff like that. So that's, again, you've got to have your, be careful about that. So it's, it's a, it's a yeah, both, if you like, coverage on both sides brings with it dangers. But, I mean, what you're talking about essentially is, is the need yeah. to be open with the public about the circumstances in which you're doing this and which I've always been, you know, people explain, you are not here by accident. People are letting you do this. Uh, well, just show, you know, the circumstances and then the, public can make the judgment about what you can say and make sure elsewhere in your coverage that you if you compensate for that and say the things that can't be said i mean it used to be in the old times the bbc if bbc sport uh, had a, there was a scandal going on they would nudge us in current affairs and say would you please cover it because we can't because we need to maintain our yeah. contracts with sport but this is an issue that should be covered so one branch of the bbc does it the other branch ignores it i mean 
It's an editorial decision. It's a, it, 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 it is. And things. I sometimes think with the BBC that there is still a degree of kind of... I mean, we know that BBC's had to get rid of a lot of people, has had to kind of cut back. And one of the things that I felt I observed over the course of the last five years was that, as it always happens, it's, it's the expensive older people who take early retirement and go. But with them goes some of the collective wisdom about how to handle situations like this. Now, of course, you and I are both veterans, so we would think this, wouldn't we? I mean, this would be where our bias would go, because you see people repeating the uh, mistakes of some time ago. Um, Funnily enough, this can be a kind of... The BBC was right to be circumspect about how it was reporting what had happened on October the 7th until it could be absolutely established, but was not similarly circumspect in the early days in Gaza, for example. Uh, And I think people, I mean, I don't know whether people notice this. I understand the reasons for it, frankly. In one situation, you could be editorially circumspect without actually feeling under pressure as a consequence of it, or under too much pressure. On the other side, if you were circumspect about Hamas, then in that case you would feel under immense pressure from the people around you in a war situation, which is very, very different. I mean, if you think your words and what you say could immediately result in a consequence for the people around you, you're going to be careful. Mm. All of this raises the question about the BBC's role and and, and the future of it. And I I just want to broaden our discussion a little bit more widely by by what seems to me to be absent. Um, Clearly, the next licence fee is going to be not what the BBC expected, clearly going to be further cuts. And I think there are two consequences which bother me. First of all, the absence of a discussion of public service broadcasting, what is it still, well, public service medium, probably should say, what is it, do we still need it, where there's market failure, etc. And then you ask, is the BBC the best way of delivering it? And then you ask, what should we pay for it? There's the absence of sort of that broader discussion. And the second thing is that now the BBC is making significant cuts. There's no form of public consultation about this. Um, and there will be further cuts to come. And people who pay the licence, we won't have a say in what is to be cut. Now, these are extraordinarily difficult issues, but let's take the first one, the absence of a real debate about public service media today and what we need. Do you see any signs of that in a potentially coming in the incoming Labour government if it does come in in the next year or so? Well, in a way, this is incredibly ironic because it comes after a period when the need for a respected and trusted public broadcaster became absolutely paramount. And I'm talking about the period of the pandemic. It was absolutely essential that the respected news outlets, the public service outlets, gave the best analysis and best information in the best possible way. In other words, they had to get it right. If you want to look at the difference, just look at the bunch of weirdos, anti-vaxxers and conspiracy theorists who litter GB News and to a certain extent uh, Murdoch's Talk TV as well. And compare that with BBC coverage, ITV coverage, but BBC was the main coverage. And actually, I have to say, one or two of the major newspapers, because uh, although I don't work there anymore, I thought the Times coverage, also the pandemic, was, was excellent. But mostly, it was the BBC. In this moment, Conservative government learned the absolute paramount value of having a news organisation that was able to have the trust of the population. If it said, this is our best understanding of how this pandemic is, is going and how the government is responding to it and public authorities are responding to it, 
it was absolutely essential to have, it was absolutely essential. And they knew that, and they valued it immensely at the time. But such are the pressures upon uh, this government in what I think are its dying days, etc., that it is now inclined to rub up against the leg of the, the right wing, of a particular kind of right wing section, which has always regarded the BBC as essentially biased, just as if you, on, on the Labour side, if you were to rub up against the Corbynite leg, you'd find a perception that the BBC is biased the other way. Now, you and I both know that we that are too old and experienced to use the term, if both sides are getting at you, you must be doing something right. That doesn't necessarily follow. But... You and I both have had the experience of wishing that we could take people criticising the BBC from one side for one thing and people criticising on the other side and put them on a desert island and let them duke it out as to which one is going to kind of win the BBC bias battle and let the rest of us actually get on with the business of trying to do the best we can in terms of reporting and analysing and so on. So, yes, there's a huge argument. Labour should be saying right now, we absolutely required the BBC to do the job that it did during the course of the pandemic. And if we hadn't had it, things might have been considerably worse. And that's just one example of where public service broadcasting uh, is essential. And the BBC, in return, has to say, this is what we value. Now, in some ways, I kind of feel as a presenter of a programme on Radio 4, which is a programme of expert analysis. That's all it does. We don't put politicians on. We don't put uh, campaigning groups on. Uh, this is the briefing room. This, yeah, is the, the briefing. this is the briefing room, which is a kind of partner programme with programmes like More or Less, which is the programme that looks at statistical claims, etc., and analyses them, etc. I think it's fair to say that the BBC has begun to put some emphasis on some of these programmes in some of these places. And there are bigger segments of it in the news broadcast as well. They do do significant kind of analytical sections and they do have more data analytical journalists than they used to have. And this is a very important thing. We should be talking about this more. And we should be saying to politicians, etc., this costs... You know, it costs quite a lot to do this. Now, you want all these other things as well, quite rightly. You want Strictly. Absolutely, you, you want all that, and that costs. And you want Gary Lineker and Match of the Day, and that costs too, and so on. So if you want these things, then in that case, we have to kind of, uh, we do have to pay for them, etc. But does the BBC have to get out itself? You see, what I think is happening, and I don't have a lot of evidence for it, but what I think is happening is a very good director general um, thinks there's no point in, has in the past, no point arguing about this. The government, you know, are going to put this pressure on. We're going to have to live within our resources. Right, I'll get down and I'll do it. The second thing he thinks is we may have to face not having the licence fee, so I'm going to build ensure that Britain has a big, successful media business called the BBC. I'm going to invest in America and everything else, and I'm going to ensure that a big business survives. What there isn't a big discussion about is what public service broadcasting is or should be in the future, and also in terms of the cuts that are to be made, whether there is a way in which, and there should be a way, in which the BBC says these are the range of things we now have to discuss cutting. There has to be some sort of public debate. So you mentioned earlier in our discussion the BBC rarely gets on the front foot when it's explaining itself about a crisis in news. Now, if it doesn't explain itself better, and if it doesn't try and demonstrate more clearly to the public what it will be losing... We're going to have to cut after cut after cut. And anybody who believes that the Labour Party has come in and going to significantly increase public spending and increase the licence fee significantly, I think he's probably living in cloud cuckoo land.
Um, it, yes, I mean, fortunately, the BBC is not so hugely expensive that to spend a bit more on the BBC would somehow kind of would break everything. I mean, I think the first thing to say is, and it's hard for the BBC to say, is this is one of the great aspects of our country. This is not some kind of stupid claims, not some kind of Boris Johnsonian, you know, hyper bluster. But this is a hugely respected institution, absolutely still, and is a major asset to the country, apart from anything else, and is a major social asset. And also, it's a social asset in that it helps keep our country together in some kind of way, and helps stop that kind of utter polarisation. It enables us to talk to each other in the way that Netflix documentaries and others will never be because they have to be international and have international appeal exactly. to earn their revenue. We need somewhere where people, and maybe no, BBC doesn't do enough and Channel 4, at least there's a possibility of different elements of society having a conversation. Absolutely, and I think, and, and I think that is kind of reflected. And also the, the values that the BBC represents in that also spread out to other organisations as well. I mean, it acts as a kind of, you know, it, it acts as something of a model. So you see the similar kind of model used in other broadcasters and to a certain extent in other bits of media landscape so it is acting as an as an exemplar but we go back to it i mean when uh, we've we've just this week had the announcement of major cuts to newsnight now of course people's uh, viewing has shifted i once used to watch newsnight all the time i now never watch it and there's a simple reason for that which is i get up earlier and go to go to bed earlier (laughs) um uh, and it's quite likely that by the time i get up in the morning the news agenda has moved on sufficiently for me not to want to watch newsnight back in a way that i might do with another time shifted program years ago newsnight should have been shifted to an earlier slot if you're going to watch it live but schedulers would i mean you you, you remember schedulers oh i remember schedulers. but i think there is an alternative now david which is uh, is actually to obviously make it available at any point at any time for anybody who wants to go there but they have to go there in the knowledge they're going to get something distinctive and what's been going on with news and actually elsewhere in the bbc is that that it, it's increasingly difficult to be distinctive when you can do original reports when you i don't want to get misty eyed but when you have charles wheeler and david sells and a few people like that telling you something and saying i know this isn't on the agenda at the moment but it should be look at this then you're offering something special when you've got people like peter taylor after all those years invested in northern Ireland and elsewhere saying this is important you haven't heard of it listen then you've then it is and i think that's one of the great difficulties with the future with particularly the new view of what news night is going to be we're going to have more chat it may be good i hope we have more analysis but we're clearly going to have less reporting i'd like to see less chat uh, I have to say, on certain programmes. I mean, I think we should kind of corral the chat to where it's actually useful uh, and so on. I mean, I have got incredibly impatient. In fact, as somebody who is abs- who is regularly asked to go and be a talking head on various programmes, I've now stopped doing it, uh, unless I think I have a specific expertise about the subject, because I have absolutely had it with people running their mouths on subjects they don't really know anything about simply for the sake of filling airtime with competing views. Now, I understand that, I mean, we just talked a moment ago about the the occasional value of having those views sort of yes. represented. So we are kind of talking to each other. But we also know that there is a become a premium on what you might call kind of popcorn discussions, which is to try and staff it up with the people who are going to shout at each other, i.e. the most uh, kind of max. So I've often had the experience uh, in in the past of being asked you know what's your opinion about such and such and i will say because i was a producer editor etc look i can see what you're after here 
I have to tell you that I don't take an extreme position on one side or another of this. This is my kind of position. I have a feeling you won't want me. And you know what? 90% of the time I was right. They didn't. <laughs> no, it is. I was asked the other day about, you know, on immigration and so on. What do you think about immigration? And I said, well, hold on a second. First of all, I think there is, the, there is something missing here. There hasn't been a proper immigration debate in this country virtually ever. Secondly, we want one which looks at the consequences uh, for the social services and other and uh, the health service or whatever if we stop immigration. It may be right to stop it, but we need to lay out all of these issues and then you take your position. But people rush to positions before they discover uh, or even think through. I mean, it's classic would be Brexit, whether you're for or against Brexit. Essentially what happened is people voted against something and they didn't vote for anything. So we're lost after it. I mean, this goes on, but there are good, great things. I don't want to say it just because you're here. I think your show on Radio 4 is one which shows that we're not a massive amount of resources, but using expertise and scrupulously objective, you can lay out the complexity that lies behind this. And also, as you mentioned, that wonderful programme, more or less, uh, which frequently, actually, I blush sometimes listening to it, thinking how many times and mistakes I've made in you know, the light that they've just illuminated. And so on. That's well, please bring those on. Please. Send Finally, I must say, because you've talked to us uh, uh, for a great deal, thank you very much. I want to ask you about you. Uh, first of all, did the Times leave you or did you leave the Times? Because I miss, I miss your column desperately. No, they, they left me. I think it was almost exactly a year ago when I... You know how we have to, even colonists, etc., kind of get work assessments, etc. So I'd had a very, very, very good assessment of my work from my immediate boss that year, which should have been suspicious in itself, Roger. Anyway, so it was almost exactly a year ago. I just filed a, a column, um, and 10 minutes later, after I'd filed it, I got a call from the managing editors, acting managing editors office saying, would I go on a call with them? And when somebody doesn't speak to you from one decade to the next, this is never going to be good. And two people appeared on the Zoom, read me my Miranda rights about my kind of legal standing, etc. So much so that I thought I was actually being sued for the first uh, 20 minutes and then told me that uh, they wanted to bring in new ideas. And could I please go and sling my hook? And we'd come to some settlement because they couldn't actually make me redundant uh, without going to tribunal. So there had to be a payoff, etc. So this was the payoff. I have not since then or before then received a single word from the editor of the Times saying this is why or even saying thank you. And the Times didn't even I worked there for nearly 18 years. Not a word from them, etc. I just got you know, pay out. Off you go. Cut off your emails two weeks within two weeks of your uh, of your leaving. And that's that. So essentially, I was fine. I could have fought it at a tribunal, etc. But I'd have I'd have ended up with less money than I actually got as a result of the uh, of the settlement. Well, as a Times as a Times reader, as well as a David Aronovich fan, um, um, I'm distressed. So they've got they have got wonderful column. William Hague is always worth reading. I like you know. Janice Turner and uh, obviously Matthew, but I mean, it's moving to the right in my view, but that's another aspect, and we certainly miss you. However, you're doing something on Substack. Tell me what you're up to at the moment. Yeah, I mean, this is this is very interesting. So it took me some time after I was I got kind of two and a half months grace, really. I, I used to try and work out what I was going to do before I actually left the Times, and. Somebody advised me to look at Substack, which is essentially is a mega blog site in which lots of people and, and what it does is it makes it very, very easy for you to create 
really decent looking websites, etc., with your own writing in it, and also to monetize it. The monetizing of it is exceptional. I mean, it's really extraordinary. Uh, in a way, I don't want to talk about how good it is because, <laughs> frankly, I could do without any more bloody competition. <laughs> Almost every two days, some friend of mine or other says they've started up a substack and have I got any advice? And my advice is, please go away. <laughs> you know, I can't. Because <laughs> what we're doing, well, what we're doing is we're kind of pillaging the same niche, yeah. if you like, uh, uh, continuously. But it's been immense fun to do because I don't always, getting a column out for the Times at some points was incredibly difficult, not because of not because of overt political um, uh, involvement, but just because the other columnists are doing this, uh, the editor thinks we've had too much of that, etc. And sometimes I do think a kind of political bias was snuck in. Um, and then I think there was a period when one of the editors just liked the kind of, you know, make things difficult because that's the kind of thing he liked doing. With the Substack, I do whatever I like. So if I want to do a three-part takedown of Nadine Doris's book, The Plot, I could do that, and I did it. And it's, I'm, you know, I really love doing it. But on the other hand, if I want to do something altogether more serious, or if I want to do something in note form, or if I want to do an extended essay, I can do whatever I like, whatever pleases me and whatever I think may please the readers. Uh, and I've got about coming up for 12,000 subscribers. Those are not paid subscribers. Paid subscribers are a very different uh, animal. And my objective would be get to 1,000 paid subscribers after a year of doing this, at which point it's making... It's great fun to do. I think they're enjoying it, and it also makes part of my living for me. So it doesn't sound to me like you uh, have any prospect. You're nearly seventy. You're much younger than me, but so I regard you still as a young man. <laughs> uh, it doesn't sound to me as you have any intention of uh, letting up, stopping. Well, no. I mean, I'm also doing things like those book review essays for the Financial Times, which I always wanted to do, but couldn't do because I was working for the Times, because they're just such a brilliant, you know, the Saturday FT book review page. It's just a lovely, lovely 1,600 words in which you take a big topic. So I do feel at the moment, in terms of what my uh, my working life consists of, there is a sort of, you know, the, there's more opportunity, and it's better, actually. I feel happier now than I did when I was when I was at the Times and the BBC, the Substack, and, and the other other things i just made this audio series for tortoise on uh, on the eight years of the labor party the kind of double revolution in the labor party but roger and you know this the thing that has really turned my life upside down was when just under two years ago 19 months ago my first grandchild was born and <laughs> they live just around the corner from us we see her practically every day number two is on the way for for march i Adore being a grandpa. I absolutely love it. I mean, I'm a better grandpa than I was a father. I don't think I was that bad a father, but I am a great grandpa, I think. I mean, I just absolutely adore her. I adore seeing her and playing, you know, being around, watching her, etc. in a way I couldn't really with my own kids. So in a kind of personal level, even while sometimes feels like the world is absolutely going to hell in a handcart and I'm sitting here looking at the prospects of, I cannot believe in the prospect of a Trump victory because it's just so kind of oh, catastrophic yeah. for everybody. But at a personal level, it's all really rather good. Well, excellent. Uh, uh, do keep on briefing us. And if I say one plug, if uh, at some point your granddaughters or grandchildren will have the privilege of reading your story of your relationship with your parents, which is the most astonishing piece of autobiography I've read it for some time. Anyway, David Aronovich, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you, Roger. 
David Aronovich's childhood memoir is called Party Animals, My Family and Other Communists, and it is a remarkable read. Well, that's it for this week. Uh, We're not on Substack, but we are on Patreon, and we do need your support. It's only £1.99 per month, not even the cost of a cup of coffee. In return, you will also be able to find out about my take on this week's interview in my weekly blog. It's quick and easy to sign up at patreon.com forward slash bwatch. The link to this can be found on our website and in the description of this program on your podcast platform. And if you didn't know already, this podcast is presented by me, Roger Bolton, and it's produced by Kate Dixon. The sound is by Dave Kitto, and special thanks to Quinn Genty. It's a good egg production. <laughs>